Thank you guys. If you have a copy of God's Word, please take it and turn to Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3, we're going to be in verses 9 through 10 this morning. It is good to be back in the book of Proverbs. We've had a few weeks away, and so I'm excited to talk about the idea of wisdom again with you. We've recognized that the book of Proverbs is trying to instill in us a wisdom that equips us to diagnose and respond to the challenges we face in life. We've talked about this diagnosis and response in the areas of substance abuse. We've talked about it in areas of marriage and intimacy. We've even talked about it in parenting. But today we're going to turn our attention to talking about wisdom when it comes to finances and money. Now, as soon as I talk about money, typically there's this little uneasiness that begins to grow inside us. I think one of the reasons we're uneasy is because if we're just honest, churches don't have the best track record on this subject. Um, We've had stories in the news about pastors and other churches that have embezzled or stolen money. It's oftentimes not hard to turn on the TV, especially later in the evening, and seeing some person that has a tie on or a kind of slick presentation telling you if you just give some money that your life will be great. One of the reasons I think it's touchy is because there's some abuse and some really poor ways that the church has tried to deal with this topic. But I think another reason why it kind of gets that response from us is because I do think there's a fundamental misunderstanding about what money really is. And maybe more pointedly, I think there's a misunderstanding about who money actually belongs to. And so what I'm hoping happens this morning is that we let our guard down about this particularly touchy subject, and we allow the Word of God to speak to our hearts. Some of us this morning are going to be encouraged and built up that we should keep going in the path that we're going. I'm praying for that. Others of us might be confronted or convicted or challenged by the Word of God this morning. My prayer is that we would have an openness of heart and mind to say, God, you are speaking, we're listening and responding. So with that said, Proverbs chapter 3, would you please stand with me? And as you're standing, let me remind you why we do this. We stand because we believe this is the living and active Word of God. We believe that when we read this, we're literally hearing from God. It's as if Jesus is standing here talking to us. And just as if we had some important person, some official or some recognizable person, we might stand to honor them if they walked in the room. We stand to honor the reading of God's word because we believe there's power in the word of God. Proverbs chapter 3, let's look at verses 9 through 10 together. Just two verses today. The Bible says, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting 
with wine. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this day, and we thank you that you have given us a clear word to hear and to respond. God, would you please help us in these moments as we hear from you to have hearts that are open, eyes and ears that are receptive to your word. But God, most of all, I pray that as we hear your word this morning, we would not just be hearers of your word. God, would you help us to be doers of your word as well. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. First thing we're going to talk about this morning is this simple question. What is wisdom with our finances? What does it look like to embrace God's plan for money? It's very clear. The writer of Proverbs laid this out very clearly in verse 9. Look back in your Bibles. He gives us a command. He says, Honor the Lord with your wealth. This word honor means to give praise or appropriate recognition. It's the picture of us setting someone aside and praising them or recognizing for something they've done. So we honor our veterans at different times of the year for their military service. We set them aside and we say thank you for what they've done for their contribution to our country. This word honor, when it applies to God, really actually speaks to our whole life's mission. We exist to glorify and honor our Creator. We're here to set God aside, as it were, to to recognize God for who He is and what He's done. But specifically in this passage, the writer of Proverbs wants us to recognize that our finances and our resources that God's entrusted to us are to contribute to the glory of God in a particular way. Notice what he says, honor the Lord with your wealth. In other words, wealth and finances should be a tool by which we are praising and glorifying God. The reality is when we begin to talk about finances, we're we're delving into the larger topic of stewardship. And what we recognize about stewardship or management is that God has given every human being at least three resources, right? He's given us our time, He's given us talent or abilities, and He's given us our treasure. And what this passage is saying is that these three things are meant to work together, specifically our finances in this passage, to contribute to a kind of symphony of God's praise that he's worthy of. So that my time, as I'm investing my life for the gospel of Jesus Christ in my family and in the community, through my talents and abilities that I use for for his service and for his praise, and yes, specifically according to this passage, with my treasure, it's my money. I'm using those things like a symphony of different instruments all coming together to produce a beautiful harmony of praise to God. So before we get to the hows and the whats of financial stewardship, what we have to first of all recognize is God's plan for money is for it to be an act of worship. That the way we use our money, the way we deploy our resources, should be, first and foremost, 
for the glory of God. He clarifies this, helps us understand this a little more clearly when he says in verse 9, look at the rest of the verse. He says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. He's talking and speaking at this point in Old Testament history to a largely agrarian or uh, agricultural society where they, uh, their economy was largely based on farming. So a contemporary version of this is that when we honor the Lord, we're to do so with the best of what we have. We're to do so with the first things, the best things of our financial resources. So a contemporization of this would be that I don't wait to the end of the month after all my bills are paid and hope I have some left over to give to God, but that my contribution and worship of my resources, specifically my money, should be at the top of my budget. It should be the first thing that I'm offering to the Lord is my money that he's entrusted to me. When you put this idea together, here's the simple truth I want you to take home this morning. The money God's entrusted to us is meant to multiply the glory of God and his kingdom around the world. The money that God has entrusted to you and to me is meant to multiply the glory of God, his fame, his name, and his renown all over the world as his kingdom advances. You see, we know what the mission is that God has given us. In Matthew chapter 28, 19 through 20, Jesus tells us very clearly, go and make disciples. Specifically, as you see that develop in the New Testament, what we recognize is we're to make disciples in a multiplying kind of way. We're to make disciples of people who can make disciples of people who can make disciples, all for the glory of God. The great commission is the call of every believer. And so when you put that commission with these verses together, what the writer of Proverbs is telling us is that our resources, specifically our finances, should be deployed in such a way that they see the great commission become more and more a reality. We're called to give the best, the first of our financial resources, not to building our own kingdom, not to building our own 401ks, but to seeing God's glory progress here and around the world. One of the things I'm thankful for is I'm thankful to be a part of a church that takes this seriously. The cards that you saw in your seats when you walked in are, are a part of our commitment to wanting to see Christ's kingdom advancing around the world. Every time you put a dollar in the plate that passes through our congregation during worship, it's going to see God's kingdom advancing. And we are living in great times as a church. I'm thankful that our church takes this seriously. I'm thankful to the glory of God that God is blessing our congregation with growth numerically. I'm thankful that God is blessing us and growing our church, not only numerically through attendance, but through finances. I'm thankful that God is growing Riverview Baptist Church, but I want you to know something. 
Every single follower of Jesus is called to embrace God's plan for finances contributing to his glory. And here's what I know. I know that while many of us are contributing to that cause and that plan, I know many of you are not. I know many of you are not getting to experience the joy that comes from giving extravagantly to a God who's extravagant with his grace. We know this because of some of the statistics that we're told. We know that according to certain statisticians and Dave Ramsey's website specifically, that 76% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. We know that around $30,000 is the average student loan balance in our country per family. We know that 90% of what's happening when people are buying things, many families are buying things they cannot afford. 62% of us, according to this study, have less than $1,000 in savings. I don't throw those numbers at you to shame you or to try to guilt you into giving. I want you to know that what I want to do this morning is not guilt you or shame you into giving the way God designed. I want you to see it as a privilege, as a joy that we get to be a part of God's kingdom advancing around the world. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to spend the focus of my time talking about how. I want to talk about how we can honor the Lord with our wealth by seeing the money God's entrusted to us multiply the glory of God and His kingdom. Now, one simple how that you can take advantage of is what Michael mentioned a few moments ago. We're going to be offering a course this fall called Financial Peace University, which is designed to help you establish some biblical principles of stewardship in your own personal family budget. I think that's great. But for the purposes of our time, as we're gathered together to worship corporately with the Lord, here's my contention. If we're going to honor the Lord, we have to remember who the Lord really is. If we're going to honor the God who we're called to give glory to, it's my belief that it's got to start by remembering who this God is that we're seeking to honor. So this morning, here's what I want to do very simply. I want to show you three of God's characteristics, three of God's roles as the sovereign ruler of the universe. And as we look at these three roles or dimensions of God's character, I want to connect them to God's plan for wise and careful stewardship. First thing I want you to see about God as it relates to understanding who he is, to honor him with our wealth, is we need to remember that first and foremost, the Lord is our provider. The first thing I believe we've got to remember if we're going to embrace God's plan for finances is that the Lord is our provider. Now, the first place this shows up in the Bible significantly is in Genesis chapter 22. In Genesis 22, you've got Abraham and his son Isaac. Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. God had promised them that they would have a son. Years passed. The promise begins to be in question. God delivers. Abraham and Sarah have a child in their old age. And then as Isaac begins to grow, God comes to them and says, I want you to sacrifice your only son, your son, whom you love. Abraham decides to obey. He takes Isaac. They begin to make the arduous journey up Mount Moriah. He prepares an altar. He binds his son. He takes the knife 
And right at the last moment, the angel of the Lord comes and tells Abraham to stop. And in the midst of a conversation between God and Abraham, he notices something out of the corner of his eye. He notices that there's a ram caught in a bush. Abraham leaves his son, takes him off the altar there, leaves him there, and goes and gets this ram, sacrifices it in Isaac's place. The ram that was caught there was a provision God had given Abraham and Isaac so that Isaac would not have to die. This is picturing and foreshadowing the beautiful grace that Jesus would show us, right? That Jesus Christ takes our place on the cross, offering his life for our sins. But once that, lamb, once that ram had been sacrificed and once that kind of sequence was finishing up, the Lord speaks a word to Abraham and Isaac. And he says, Abraham, I am the Lord who provides. I'm the one who gives you what you need. This is why verse 10, look back in your Bibles at chapter 3, reads the way that it does. Once we honor the Lord, notice what verse 10 says, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. This is a general principle. This should not be applied too forcefully to some kind of quid pro quo with God, where if I do what God wants me to do, he's always going to give me what I want. What this passage is, however, teaching is that God, with the testimony of Scripture behind it, provides for our needs. God does not always give us what we want, but God does always give us what we need as followers of Christ. That's a pretty, pretty bold statement, Spencer. Can you, can you support that? Yes, because all we have to do is look at Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ meets the greatest need of our hearts because when he offers his life as a sacrifice for our sins, he's dealing with our greatest problem, our sin and rebellion before a holy God. Now, I I linger on this point for a reason because there is a brand of theology, there is a a brand of even what's called Christianity that says If you believe hard enough, if you pray enough, you'll always get what you want. There's a brand of theology that says, if you're sick and you pray, you can get better. If you don't have enough money and you send in a vow of faith to some TV person with pink hair, you can get what you want. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? If you do those things, according to this version of theology, you can have health and wealth and prosperity. And the reason I hit this point regularly as a pastor for you is because I want you to know that the prosperity gospel is not the biblical gospel of Jesus Christ. He doesn't promise us whatever we want. He doesn't promise us comfort and ease and happiness. He promises us Christ. He promises us holiness through the blood of Jesus. And what we have to remember is while there may be things that we want, Jesus is really all we need. 
If you don't start there in stewardship, if you don't remember that the Lord that we're called to worship with our finances is provider, it's easy to think that he's a God that we can manipulate and cajole to get what we want. That is not the God of the scriptures before us. Yes, we're to be careful in our stewardship. Yes, we're to be people of honesty and integrity who work hard to excel at the callings that God has given us. But we never do so with worry or fear or fret. We work hard, we're careful, we're good stewards, and then we lay our heads on our pillows at the end of the night and say, God, we know that you are provider. One of the reasons this is so important is remembering that God is provider keeps us off the American treadmill of always wanting more. You feel this as an American? You are told that the way that you get significance, the way that you get happiness is by more. John Rockefeller was asked, the famous wealthy industrialist, how much money does it take to satisfy a person? Do you know what his answer was? Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more and then I'll be happy. (laughs) Just a little bit bigger house and, and then things will really be moving in the right direction. Remembering that God is provider keeps us off the rat race of trying to keep up with everybody, trying to get the next thing as if that's gonna satisfy us. It reminds us that Jesus and Jesus alone can satisfy our hearts. If we're going to give our finances to see them multiply the glory of God and his kingdom, it's got to start by remembering, number one, that the Lord is our provider. Number two, we've got to remember that the Lord is our creator. He's our creator. In this passage of scripture in verse nine, you'll notice that the word Lord in your Bibles is in all caps, L-O-R-D, all capital letters there. Whenever you see that in your Bible, that's referencing the personal name for God, the, the covenant name for God, that he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But oftentimes, especially in the Old Testament, the word Lord, in all caps, is often associated with God's role as creator, sovereign ruler of the universe. And so when we see that, what we should remember is that while we behold a number of things with our eyes, we see construction and buildings going up all around us, there is not one part of creation that doesn't bear God's preparatory creative activity on it. God has created everything that we see. In fact, God, when he creates us, creates us with a very intentional purpose because of his role as creator. When he makes Adam and Eve, the Bible tells us that he makes them in his image. That that when he fashions male and female, he creates them in what's called the image of God. Now, the image of God means a lot of things. It means we have a soul or a spirit that, that lasts forever. But it also, especially related to stewardship, speaks to our identity who we are and the function we're called to carry out. What we know is that because we bear the image of God, we are meant to be God's ambassadors, his representatives on this earth. 
And one of the primary ways God calls you and I to be his image bearers, to be his representatives, is by managing or stewarding the resources God has entrusted to us. So think about this with me. Think about what a typical day in the life was like for Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall. You ever thought about that? What do you think they did while they were there? I'm sure there's a number of ideas that we could come up with, none of them in the Bible, uh, that we could, theories we could offer. But I think sometimes it's easy through paintings or through culture to assume that they kind of propped up their feet and they just kind of had grapes that they were popping in as they kind of relaxed there in the garden. The, the only picture we really get that gives us some insight about what they did was in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, God creates all of, of nature there, the animal kingdom especially. And do you remember what God did after he created the animals? The Bible says that he brings them to Adam one by one to name them. Now, I have a question. Do you think God needed help naming the animals? You think God's somehow not creative enough to figure out what to call these things? No. God is entrusting, is delegating, and investing a level of responsibility and authority into Adam and Eve to oversee what is entrusted to them. While God owns and creates everything that's there, He entrusts them with a level of responsibility and care over his created order. You and I, though we don't live in the Garden of Eden, are no different. We are called with the things that God has entrusted to us to recognize that we don't own a one of them, but we are nevertheless called to manage and steward them for the glory of God. It reminds me of, of uh, kind of a juxtaposition in J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. I don't know if you're familiar with the books or the movies, but Tolkien creates this kind of mythical world. We've got different races of beings there. And in the race of humans, there's this kingdom called Gondor. And Gondor is kind of the central hub for the race of, uh, of men. And one of the, the tensions in the Lord of the Ring books and the movies is the tension between the king of Gondor, this guy named Aragon, and the steward of Gondor, this guy named Denethor. And there's this kind of back and forth between these two characters because on the one hand, the king of Gondor, by blood and by heritage, has the right to be the king. In fact, one of the books is called The Return of the King because by his lineage, Aragon has the right to oversee all of the kingdom. But the steward, on the other hand, Denethor, is this guy who, while he has no blood right, he has no lineage to claim a position of king, he nevertheless has been entrusted with some level of responsibility over the kingdom. What you and I have to remember about our finances is that there is only one king and his name is Jesus. There is only one king and by virtue of his death, burial, and resurrection, he's the one who's over everything that we have. You and I, on the other hand, are stewards. We're caretakers of things that have been entrusted to us. One of the ways that God has 
been tremendously convicting me lately is about my kids. Parents, have you realized that your children are not your own? (laughs) They're God's. They're gifts that God has entrusted to us. I'd highly commend to you um, Paul Tripp's new book on parenting has been challenging me to think about my children not as things that I control or I'm supposed to kind of be overseeing, but as gifts that God has entrusted to me, that I'm to be an ambassador of grace in their lives. God, in the same way, has not given us our resources for us to own them. He's given us these resources as a recognition that we manage or steward them. And here's why this is so crucial for you and for me. If I misunderstand my role as a manager, I can begin to look for things from my resources that I can only get from God. The reason the idea of being a manager or steward is so important is because if I'm not careful, I can begin to look to my money for things that I can only get from God. So it's very easy, back to my kids, for me to look at my kids as a source of worth or value or purpose or happiness. It's easy for me to look at my money as a place that gives me security or joy. The problem is that when I begin to think that I own these things, when I begin to look for these things, for things that I can only get from God, I begin to create idols in my life that I'm worshiping rather than the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This is why people do wildly unethical things with money. It's because money, for most of our culture, is God. It's king. The reason people manipulate and cajole and do unethical things with finances is because we're trying to get security and peace and worth and value from it. don't know if you've followed the scandal in the financial services and banking community around Wells Fargo, but it's been incredibly impactful. I have a brother who's a banker. I have a father who's a banker. So when we sit down for Thanksgiving dinner, we talk about banking, financial services. I don't know if you're aware, but Wells Fargo a couple years ago was caught red-handed creating accounts without the permission of their customers. So Jack Butler here would walk in one day to make a deposit at his bank. And as Jack was walking out, the teller there or the, the banker there would have said, you know, I think Jack should have another account that we should open for him. He won't really know. It won't be any really big deal. So they'd open a new account for Jack. And they did this with thousands of people. And suddenly they got caught. And there was, of course, what we do when we get caught. We have legislation. We have Senate hearing committees. We have all manner of problems that come from this unethical use of money. Now, here's my question to you. Wells Fargo, one of the largest banks in the country, maybe even the world. Don't don't they have enough money? Don't they have enough market share and capital there to, to be satisfied? What led them to such greed and such aggressive sales tactics where they turned a blind eye to clear unethical practices with finances? Here's the answer. When money is your God, you will do whatever it takes to get 
more. When money is what I'm all about, when finances are what I live my life for, when it's the God that I'm looking for, for peace and joy and happiness, what inevitably happens is I begin to manipulate and conjole and and try to use money in a way that it was never intended to be used. Family, church family, we have to remember that money is an incredible tool that God has given us for his worship, but if we're not careful, it can become an object of worship. So let me ask you this question as a way of applying this to our lives. Who owns your money in your life? Who owns your money? Do you own your money? Is it yours to do with as you see fit? Or do you recognize that God and God alone owns what we have? Number three, thirdly and finally, not only is the Lord our provider and creator, he is also our redeemer. The Lord is our redeemer. Again, when you see your Bibles with the word Lord in all caps like that, what you're seeing is the covenant name for God. The fact that God is aggressively committed to redeeming a people for his own possession. And this harkens back again to Adam and Eve. Because while Adam and Eve were created to be God's servants, his managers, his stewards, they decided that they weren't satisfied with that position and that role. So what do they do? In Genesis chapter 3, the Bible says that when Adam and Eve saw that the tree was good for food, they took of it and ate. If you compare Genesis 3 to Genesis 1, this is the exact same phrase that was used about God when he was creating. God would create something and, he would, and the Bible would say, and God saw that it was good. You see, in Genesis 3, what Moses is showing us through the inspiration of the Spirit is that there's this reversal going on where Adam and Eve are no longer satisfied being stewards and managers. They want to be owners. After all, that's what they're tempted with. You can be like God. So God banishes them from the garden. And as God banishes them from the garden, he makes them a promise. He says, I'm banishing you, but I'm promising that one day there will be a seed that will come from the woman who will defeat the evil that's been unleashed here. One day, there's going to be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who's going to be a blessing to the nations. One day, there's going to be a king that's going to come from David's line that's going to reign forever. And he's saying that when that king comes, he's going to offer his life as a sacrifice for your sins. He's going to die in your place. And he's not just going to save you from something. He is. He's going to save you from death and danger of your sin. But he's also going to save you for something. He's going to save you to be what God made you to be, a steward and manager over God's incredible resources he's entrusted to us. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that though we deserve death, Jesus takes that on himself and dies in our place. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, you don't know this Savior that we're speaking about. The way that you receive the goodness and the grace of God is by repenting of your sin and trusting Christ. 
One of the reasons I believe this message is so timely is because I believe there may be many of you this morning that are trusting your money. You're trusting your stuff. You're trusting and hoping in your job and your career being some way of giving you meaning and significance in life. But the reality is that all of those things fail us. Jesus and Jesus alone is the one who died for you and I on that cross. The good news is that as God is Redeemer, He takes it a step further. He saves us from something, He saves us for something, and then He gathers together a people called the church. In the New Testament, in Acts chapter 2, when the church is born, when the church begins, it begins with the Holy Spirit gathering together a group of professing, declaring believers who are saying, Jesus is Lord. And from that point, the church has as its mission getting the message of Jesus the Redeemer to the world. The church has as its marching orders making disciples of all nations. Now here's why I tell you this. One of the ways that we honor the Lord with our resources is recognizing that the Lord is the Redeemer and that the church is His plan. Our resources should be harnessed should be deployed to giving to our local body of believers for the furtherance of God's kingdom. The church is the vehicle God has decided to use for His glory to spread here and around the world. One of the questions that comes up when we talk about giving to the church is, what's an appropriate amount? What what should you shoot for? And my answer is always that 10% is a good goal. I don't believe that 10% is like a principle that if you don't meet that you're sinning or you're disobeying God. But I do think 10% is a great goal to strive for. Not out of duty or obligation or burden or fear, but because we want to build things into our lives that remind us of what's really important. You see, if, if my giving to my local body of believers is at the top of my budget, do you know what that says? It says, this is what really matters. Because here's the deal. There are only two things that are eternal. Only two. The word of God and the souls of people. Your house is not unimportant. Your car's your kids' college education, none of those things are trivial to God. But please remember, church, the only thing that's going to last is God's word and God's people. So what we're called to do is to get the word of God into the hearts of people. And what we do when we honor the Lord with our finances, we honor him when we give to this task. You and I are called to be a people that honor the Lord with our wealth by remembering that he's the redeemer who's unleashed the church as a force in this world to see men and women, boys and girls come to faith in Jesus Christ. So let me ask you this question. If this indeed is God's plan, what's the next step for you and your family? What's the next step in moving towards God's plan for finances? For some of you this morning, it might be getting out of debt. I mean, if the numbers are right, and I'm looking out across this room, and we've got people upstairs in the overflow room as well well that are watching, 
it's got to be true that many of us are drowning in debt. Some of you may want to give. You, you want to participate, but you can't. The first step for some of you may be going to a class like Financial Peace and getting some help on how to manage and steward the resources that God has given you. Some of us may be already in a good place of financial stewardship, but there's a, there's a lack of generosity in our lives. Can I tell you what spurs us on to be generous with what God has given us? <laughs> it's when we realize how generous God is to us. <laughs> we have a Redeemer that's not just given us a thimble of grace, but as we sing about this morning as we open, He's flooded open the storerooms of heaven to give us grace beyond what we can measure. We are gracious, generous people because we have a gracious, generous God. Some of us, the way we may need to grow is recognizing that we need to take a next step in generosity towards giving to what God is doing here and around the world. When I was in college, we had a missionary who came and spoke in a shared an illustration that I'll never forget. It's been burned in my mind. He came and talked about uh, lostness in the world, and he, and he pictured global lostness like somebody being at the bottom of a well. You can picture one of those old wells where it's got you know, stones at the top circling it, and, and it goes down, goes, goes down so deep you can't, can't see the bottom of it. It's, it's dark and it's black, and, and you can't see. And this missionary talked about how Uh, lostness and global lostness is like people that are in darkness at the bottom of this well. And what the church is called to do and to be is a group of people that are coming together with a rope to get the gospel and deliverance down to the bottom of that well. There are different people at different places on the rope, aren't there? If that job's going to happen, you're going to have to have some people at one end of the rope, anchoring that rope, holding it. You're going to have to have other people that are closer to the hole, that are kind of guiding the process. But you're also going to have to have some people that wrap a rope around their waist and are in some ways lowered down into that hole to bring deliverance and hope to people in darkness. I'm thankful, and I can stand before you unapologetically and ask you to give to this church because we take the call to get the gospel to the world seriously. And we are supporting people that are going into some of the darkest places of the world. We've got people that we're supporting that are in some of the darkest places of the world. And what I want to challenge you today to consider is, where are you on this rope? Are you giving and praying and going to support the work of getting the gospel here? My fear is that some of us don't have a place on this rope. Some of us don't have our hands worn with prayer and giving to see the gospel go to these people. The truth and the reality for you and for me is the question is not whether we're going to be on this rope. God's called every one of us to participate actively in getting the gospel to the world. The question is, where are we in the process of getting the gospel to the world? My prayer for us, church, is that we would be a people that with our wealth, by seeing our money multiply the glory of God and his kingdom here and around the world. Would you pray with me, please?